Welcome, everyone. Hey, before we get started today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call a little bit of an audible. Um, this hasn't been announced or anything, but it came to my attention that there's a lot of people who are going to be leaving very soon uh, because of camp ministry. Uh, we have a lot of people in our church who are involved in the different camps in our area, uh, Brookwoods and uh, really others around as well. So if it's okay with you guys, can we invite everybody who's doing camp ministry this summer up so that we can pray over them uh, from Berea, Brookwoods, wherever you are, come on up here now. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Jesus being the light of the world and how we, as his people, with his light shining into our lives, we turn around and we go out and carry his light out into the darkness. And what these people do every summer is they go out and they shine the light of Jesus Christ at the camps around New England. And so we are so thankful uh, for them. We're going to miss all you guys so much. Um, but let's just take a minute to pray and really commission these people uh, as they go out uh, and, and shine Christ's light to kids all over New England. Heavenly Father, we, we love the way that you use uh, these people every summer, these brothers and sisters of ours, Lord. We get so used to having them around, all of a sudden when they, when they leave, we, we miss them, God. But we know that the reason they're going and what they're doing is, is making your name great and glorifying your name, Father. And so we pray, Father, that as you use them, you wouldn't let them uh, get dry or exhausted uh, to the point where they can't also, uh, can't also be, be drawing their life from you, Father. So as they pour out all summer, we pray that you would pour into them. As they pour out all summer, we pray that you would protect their marriages and their families. As they pour out all summer, Father, we pray that the hearts of the kids that they're pouring into would receive the light of your gospel, would receive the life that can be found in your name, Lord, and would go home because of camp just a little bit closer to you than they were before they went to camp. And so, Father, work through these brothers and sisters this summer, Father, and may you receive all the glory and praise and honor. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Give them a round. Yep. Uh, well, my name is Ben Rule. I'm the pastor here at Be Free. Uh, and we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, by loving others, and by making disciples. That's who we are. That's what we do, and that's how we do it. And what we do during this time is we continue our worship by looking at the Word of God, laboring and longing to understand what the Word of God has to say to us, so that we can believe what it says, so that we can obey what it teaches, and so that we can delight in the God that it reveals to us. So we're going to continue worshiping this morning in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We're going to go all the way from verse 1 to verse 41, the entire chapter today. It's one story, and it is a story where we see Jesus continue to shine his light into the darkness. Um, so before we dive in, let's pause one more time pray, ask the Holy Spirit uh, to guide this time and to work it into our hearts. And Father, we, we love you. We praise you. We're here this morning because we love you and because we as a family want to praise you, God. But we pray that we wouldn't just come here to check a box, not just to get more information into our heads, but Father, we would come here this morning so that your spirit could change our hearts that we could love you more deeply, change the way that we live so that we could honor you more truly every single day, Father. 
And so we pray, Father, that today would be a day where you are praised and we are further equipped to do the ministry uh, and to shine your light uh, that you have given us to shine in our region, Father. So, Father, use today for your purposes. We love you and we praise you. Speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so for the last number of weeks, uh, we've been in John chapter 7 and 8. In John chapter 7 and 8, Jesus is in the temple at the Feast of Booths, and he's having a conversation with the Jewish, the Jewish leaders. In that conversation, there's been a lot of friction, a lot of heat. So that by the time we come to the end of John chapter 8, the Jews are picking up stones to actually stone Jesus. Now, we don't actually know exactly how long after the Feast of Booths this next passage comes. Some people think it happened right when Jesus was leaving the temple. Other people think that it happened many weeks or months later, but we really can't know for sure. But what we do know is Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples. And as they're walking, uh, they're walking uh, in Jerusalem and they see a blind man, a man who was blind from birth. We actually know that this man was a beggar in Jerusalem. It's likely that Jesus and his disciples had seen this guy in Jerusalem for years and years and years. Perhaps they even gave him money when he begged in the past. And so this is where the stage is set. This is what we find right at the beginning. Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem, and they're walking and they see a blind man. So let's start here in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it, was day, while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus and the, and the disciples, they see this blind man. And the disciples ask a question that might sound strange to us. They ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now the idea that this man sinned so that he was born blind is an interesting thing to begin with. Not many fetuses are sinning, as far as I know. But the, even the idea or the concept that this man was blind specifically because of a certain sin that either he or his parents committed was actually something that was pretty common back then. Now, they're not entirely wrong. All suffering and all brokenness is a direct result of sin. And that's true at a universal level. Things are not the way they're supposed to be because of sin. Because sin entered into the world at the beginning when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree. But this isn't tr as true on a universal level, right? Sometimes uh, suffering and brokenness comes upon us because of our sins, but it's not karma. This isn't how life works. A lot of times in life, people suffer who are holy and righteous, while people prosper who are wicked. In fact, we see the biblical authors, both Old and New Testaments, wrestling with this reality constantly. But what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't correct their thinking here. He doesn't go into depth to explain, actually, guys, that's not exactly how it works. Rather, this is what Jesus says. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So he doesn't correct them. Rather, what he says is, yeah, it's, it's neither of those. It's not this man nor his parents. But the reason that this man is blind is so that God's works might be displayed in him. 
When we read that, our, their, our antenna should quiver a little bit. This is a hint for us that God's works are about to be put on display. We should see this little warning so that we have our eyes open so as we read on, we can see maybe what God's works on display are going to be. So let's keep our eyes open as we continue reading. Verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So again, here, I mean, there's a lot here. But again, what we're seeing here in this verse is that this theme of light and darkness, day and night, blindness and sight, is a theme that comes back up again in this passage. We saw it in John chapter 1, where it said that the light was coming into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light. We saw it in John chapter 3, a passage we read just a couple minutes ago for the call to worship. Then again, John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now again in chapter 9, he calls himself the light of the world. Again, this theme of light and darkness keeps showing up throughout the book of John. So the stage is set now. So what will the light of the world do? Let's keep reading. Let's, let's join us uh, together in verse, verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So what does the light of the world do? The light of the world gives light to the one who was in darkness. He gives sight to the one who was blind. And here again, like all of Jesus' miraculous signs, it wasn't just a, ma a magic trick. It wasn't just something to gain popularity or attention. This sign was meant to point towards something. This was meant to be a signpost to declare something about who Jesus is. I'm going to read one passage for you from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah uh, 35, verses five, sorry, 4 through 6. In this passage, God says this to Isaiah. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. In this passage, God is saying to Isaiah and then through Isaiah that a day will come when God will come. A day will come when God will come and on that day, the eyes of the blind will be opened. On that day, the lame man will leap like a deer. Have we seen those two things happen? And so when Jesus is doing these signs, he is conducting the works that the people of Israel have been waiting for all the way since Isaiah wrote them 700 years before. And in fact, the people were meant to see this. Uh, just really quickly, thinking over to the book of Matthew, chapter 11, John the Baptist is wondering in that passage, is Jesus truly the one that we should be waiting for? So John the Baptist sends his disciples over to Jesus and asks him, asks him this, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John wants to make sure that Jesus is actually the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And so Jesus says to the disciples, he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not, who is not offended by me. When John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? Jesus doesn't answer by just saying yes. Rather, what he says to the disciples is, what do my works show you? The works that I'm doing, what do they prove to you? Look at my signs. I'm fulfilling the prophecies. He actually is quoting almost verbatim Isaiah chapter 35 to say, look, I am the one that you should be waiting for. I am the Messiah. And so back here in John chapter 9, as Jesus opens the eyes of a blind man, he is declaring with his works who he is. That he is the Messiah, the one the Jewish people had been waiting for. So continuing on in verse 8, let me, let me start reading again there. The neighbors and those who had seen him before, that's the blind man before, as a beggar were saying this, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So the people see the, the man who was blind now seeing, and they disagree as to whether he was actually the man at all, if his eyes had actually been opened. And so they continue on to the Pharisees and ask the Pharisees for help to figure out what do we do with all of this. So let's continue in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division amongst them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. So the people look at what happened, uh, and they have a divided opinion. Did this sign actually happen? Well, they can't quite agree. And now, coming to the Pharisees, we see that the Pharisees are also divided. And speaking about Jesus in verse 16, some of them say that this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so some of the Pharisees were focused on the signs, and some of them were focused on the law. It seems by looking at this passage, the division is really there. The ones who focused on the law did not believe, while those who focused on the signs did believe. But even if we're honest with ourselves, the Pharisees who did respond favorably, who did say, you know what, maybe uh, he's not a sinner, uh, they're not really taking a true, solid position on who Jesus is. Rather, all their saying is, you know, maybe he's, he's not a sinner. And, and that's, that's a far cry from faith. But what we have to notice is that this is very similar to the pool of Bethesda. Back in John chapter 5, when Jesus heals the lame man, almost the exact same conversation happens between the, Jew, the Jewish leaders. 
some of them believed and some of them didn't. And the division back then also was on that one question. He breaks the Sabbath. He breaks the Sabbath. This man could not be from God. But at this point, the Pharisees are on the scent, right? They heard the story from the man, but they weren't there. They've got the story, but that now they want to get the backstory. Is everything that this man says actually true? So they continue on on the scent in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know how he, uh, know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So first the man told the people. Then the people brought the man to the Pharisees. Then the man told the Pharisees. And now the Pharisees go and ask the man's parents. They'd heard the story, now they were checking the backstory because the man, they didn't actually believe for sure that this man had actually been born blind. But when they call the parents, they actually don't get the information that they're really looking for because they say what they're able to say. The parents say what they're willing to say. They weren't, they weren't there either. So they say what they can about the man's identity, but they're unwilling to state a solid position, and this is because of fear of the Jews. They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to get thrown out of the synagogue because of their position on this. So they simply punt the question back to the son. They throw him under the bus. <laughs> they say, ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And even though they've already spoken to the son, the Jews do that yet again. They call the son to themselves for another conversation. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's a good answer. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How, how did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and, would, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out of the temple. So calling this man back, they don't ask him what happened. At the beginning, they don't even ask him what happened at, at first. Rather, they command him to renounce Jesus as a sinner. They say, give glory to God. You know that this man, we know that this man is a sinner. They've already come to their decision. 
They've already decided who Jesus was. But the man replies, look, I, I, don't, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And when the Jews return yet again to their old line of questioning, the formerly blind man pushes back and he pushes back hard. Do you want to become his disciples? Do you also want to become his disciples? And so this absolutely lights the Jews up, and they simultaneously go on the attack and on the defense. Verse 28, And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now, this sounds really similar to what we saw last week, actually. Here they're saying we are disciples of Moses. Last week they were saying Abraham is our father. But the same answer would apply in this passage as it did last week. Last week Jesus said to them, if you were children of Abraham, you would be doing the works Abraham did. In this passage, Jesus could have said to them, if you were truly disciples of Moses, you would be obeying the law that Moses spoke. But Jesus wasn't there. We don't know what Jesus would have said, but what we do know is what the blind man did say. What the blind man does is he points to the exact point that needed to be revealed. In verse 30, he says this, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. And this question of where Jesus comes from and also his miracles, it, it sort of feels like two different streams of thought. It's hard to really know at first how these two things fit together until we stop and remember what his miracles were meant to do and what his miracles were meant to reveal. Jesus' miracles, remember from the book of Isaiah, like we just thought about a minute ago, they were meant to reveal that he was the anointed king, that, he, that the time had come for his kingdom to be established. They were meant to reveal that he was sent by God. So with this in mind, the man is basically saying, you do not know where he comes from, yet his sign shows us where he comes from. You say you do not know where he comes from, but his signs are revealing that he comes from God. This is the same thing Jesus has been saying on and on and on. And in verse 33, we read, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Absolutely indignant at this, the Pharisees drop rank and they kick him out. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Reading verse 35 to the end. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Verse 39. I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become 
blind. That's exactly what happens here. The blind man could see what the seeing men couldn't. The seeing men couldn't see what the blind men could. The blind man sees the light and believes in the light of the world, while the Pharisees think they see, but they do not see, and they remain in the darkness. The blind man, who, was, who the community believed to be a sinner because he was blind, sees the truth of who Jesus is. He believes in Jesus, and he does what the Pharisees asked him to do. He gives glory to God, not by renouncing Jesus, but by falling down on his face to worship Jesus. The Pharisees, who the community believed to be models of truth and righteousness, are blind to who Jesus is, blind to their guilt, and they remain in their guilt. Don't you love how upside down and backwards all of this is? The Pharisees are showing and are absolutely painting a picture of spiritual pride here. They think they are holy. They think they are righteous. They think they are standing properly before their Lord. While here, what we see the blind man doing is painting a picture for us of perfect humility. And so with the opening of the blind man's eyes in John chapter 9, John points us back again to the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the one who shines his light into the darkness, and Jesus is the one who can open the eyes of the blind. And then with the blindness of the Pharisees, John chapter 9 points us back again to the fact that the Pharisees are not only able to open their own eyes, but might be blinded by the very things that they think gives them life. Their self-righteousness, their lofty reputation, their knowledge, their spiritual pride. These are the very things that are preventing them from seeing the light. Verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. It's the leader's failure to admit their blindness that ultimately leads to Jesus' pronouncement that your guilt remains. When we think about the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to proclaim, it's, we very often and typically focus on the good news part of the gospel. Gospel means good news, so that kind of makes sense. But more often than not, what we focus on is the fact that we have been saved, that we have been made new creations, that we have made, been made his disciples, and that we are sent to shine his light and to proclaim his message. Hallelujah. Absolutely. That is absolutely true. But the good news is not good news at all if we forget the bad news. The good news of the gospel is not good news at all if we, do not, if we forget the sinful, hopeless state that we were in before we believed the good news. If we forget what we've been saved from, why does it matter if we've been saved? For you see, before we can truly know the joy of the life that we can have in Christ, we must grasp the depth of the hopelessness that we have apart from Christ. That our best, best offers, oh, sorry, our best efforts before the Lord filthy rags, that we are utterly and totally in the dark, that we are dead without hope, without Christ. Because we can believe in Jesus Christ, but the moment that we start thinking a little bit more highly of ourselves, the moment that we start thinking to ourselves, you know, I'm not that bad, the moment we start to diminish the bad news of our sinfulness is the moment that we start to diminish the good news of the gospel. When we start to forget what we've been saved from, the saving doesn't bear all that much meaning. 
I'm really thankful for our home group because almost this entire year, year we've been focusing on the gospel. And as we've been talking about the gospel, we've been talking about two different parts of it, or maybe two different pieces that help us understand what the gospel truly is. Number one, we've been focusing on the greatness of God, his glory, his majesty, his perfection, his beauty, his holiness, his righteousness. And at the same time, we've been focusing on our position in sin. The fact that we are sinful. The fact that we are hopeless without Christ. And what our conversation has been teaching me all year long, and I'm so thankful for it because I needed this reminder, I need this reminder constantly, is that if we bring down the glory of God, we shrink the size of the gospel. But at the exact same time, if we forget truly how hopeless we are without Christ, that shrinks the size of the gospel too. If we forget or we lose sight of just how glorious God is, the size of the gospel becomes smaller and smaller and smaller to us. But if we start thinking that we are actually not that bad, that Jesus is actually pretty lucky to have us, then the size of the gospel gets shrunken as well. The more we grasp our sin and our hopelessness, the more good the good news becomes to us. The Pharisees here, they didn't understand their sin. They didn't understand their hopelessness apart from Jesus Christ. The man who understood how much he needed Jesus was the man who was humble. It was the blind man. And so for us, if we have never, if you have never trusted in the light of the world to open your eyes, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never done that before, then I want to ask you to do today what the blind man did in this passage, to believe in the Son of Man and to become a worshiper of Him. I invite you to humble yourself like the blind man, to admit your blindness and sin before God, to admit that you cannot open your own eyes, to believe in Jesus Christ, to trust in Him, put your faith in Him, because He will open your eyes. The light of the world will shine into your life. But for those of us who have believed this, we have to remember that we have something to learn from this as well. Because our greatest danger now as followers of Jesus Christ is to become proud. Our greatest danger is to forget where we got our sight from. It's to forget that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Be free. Do not forget who opened your eyes. Do not forget that we would still be blind if we were not rescued by the grace of Jesus Christ. Hold tightly to the gospel of grace. Remember that you do not deserve that love, but it has been given to you anyway. And do not forget that if you... <laughs> do not fall into moral and spiritual pride. That's really what I'm trying to say. Because I find myself doing this constantly. I find myself doing this constantly when I look at the world around me in darkness and I scoff rather than pray. When I look at the world around me that's in darkness and scoff at those in darkness rather than introduce them to the light. I'm more prone to be surprised at their blindness and actually go out and tell them about the one who can shine light into their blindness. As Jesus shone his light into our lives. It's our turn now to go and shine his light out into that darkness. None of us saved ourselves. 
None of us opened our eyes. None of us shined light into our darkness. We are completely and totally dependent on Jesus Christ. So like the blind man, remember who opened your eyes. Like the blind man, humble yourself and respond with faith and with worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are so thankful for love we don't deserve. Father, if you didn't humble yourself and come down to live with us, humble yourself to the point of death on the cross, Father, we would be dead. We would be hopeless. We would have nothing, Father. But because you humbled yourself and came to earth to shine your light into the darkness, Lord, now we can see. Because you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, opened our eyes so that we could believe the gospel and find life in your name. And so, Father, now that we are your disciples, we pray that you would send us out boldly into the darkness, shining your light into even the darkest places, Lord. And we pray that our worlds, the the places where we live, would be lit up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, bring more light to Alton, New Hampshire. Bring more light to Wolfsboro. Bring more light to all the places where we live and work and play this summer. Bring more light to the camps this summer as we send these campers out. And Father, we pray that your name would be glorified and been made great through the light that shines from your people in this church. And so we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.